Saigon. Shit. Um, we're still on Saigon. Every time we wake up, we're recording a podcast. For film is lit. Laura and I hardly ever talk to each other unless we're recording a podcast. <laughs> the only other times we talk is when she's handing me the divorce papers. <laughs> we're not married yet, but at this rate, it's gonna happen. Shit. <laughs> what if every time I got mad, I wrote divorce papers on scrap paper with a pen? <laughs> then I'd just rent a hotel room and I'd go... Saigon, <laughs> like, sir, this, but is, this is why I'm Pasadena. <laughs> yeah, you just hey, can't stop. I get frustrating it. sometimes. <laughs> you try doing this podcast with someone else, <laughs> am I right? <laughs> Talking to the listener. <laughs> Welcome to Film is Lit, the podcast where we take a piece of literature and compare and contrast it to its film or television adaptation. My name is Danny, I'm the film expert, pronouns he, him. My name is Laura, she, her, and I am the literature expert-ish. <laughs> yeah, and if you couldn't tell from our opening, Ooh. imitating the great Martin Sheen, we are covering Apocalypse Now. Based on the novella by Joseph Conrad called Heart of Darkness. Heart of Darkness. And this is a two-part episode, so there are two movies that are loosely based off of Heart of Darkness. This is the first episode where we're covering Apocalypse Now. Tune in next week, or whenever we edit the pod, <laughs> we're going to be talking about Ad Astra, the Brad Pitt vehicle that came out in 2019. Wow, it's already it's already 2021. That's crazy to think about. But yeah, yeah the, Ad Astra is a loose retelling of Apocalypse Now, mm -hmm. in a sense. And Apocalypse Now is an adaptation of Heart of Darkness. So this is a cool two-part episode. We're covering an adaptation and then an adaptation of an adaptation. Three wildly different but same thematically mm -hmm. projects. Right, so, yeah. But this is part one covering Apocalypse Now. What a film. <laughs> it certainly is a motion picture. Would yeah. you agree? Yeah, intense. <laughs> I had forgotten how incredible this movie is. This happens a lot with quote-unquote classics. Like, I've mentioned The Godfather before, which mm -hmm. Coppola, he directed Apocalypse Now, but also did The Godfather films. Mm -hmm. You know, everyone calls that a classic, too. And with films that are deemed classics, it's easy to forget just how good they are because you're told, you know, especially for a film person like myself, you're just told right. over and over growing up that they're so great. And then once you actually sit down and watch them, you're like, oh, wow, yeah, this actually is incredible. Right. This deserves this its title. Out. Yeah. Yeah. The Apocalypse Now certainly stood out. I saw it in high school when I was actually reading Heart of... Um, this is getting into my journey, if you oh, don't yeah. mind. Yeah, do it. But read Heart of Darkness for my uh, senior year. AP lit class, remember I'm that? I'm so impressed, because I didn't read this till I was in college. Yeah, no, Mr. Tiveldi, great, great guy. I hope he's listening. <laughs> I don't know if he is, but... You're going to say I hope he's alive. No, no, oh yeah, he's alive. He was, he was a young buck when he, <laughs> okay. he was teaching me. I had a lot of old teachers, so it's honestly, yeah. you never know. No, great, great teacher. Shout out Mr. Tiveldi, but he assigned Heart of Darkness. Now, as great as a teacher as he was, I personally have a hard time reading Heart of Darkness. Not because of the story or the thematics, 
I just mm-hmm. think the actual text itself, it's very difficult for... It's dense. It, it's just the, the language used is difficult for me to grasp. Obviously, that speaks to my intelligence level and vocabulary. No. <laughs> but it also just speaks... Like something like, I like Shakespeare, for instance. And that's a whole different type of mm-hmm. lyricism and language. I mean, Shakespeare right. is like its own separate language that you have to study and learn shout out to william shakespeare i know Uh, whoa let's let's stop the podcast and just talk about shout out to william shakespeare hot take (laughs) but he could he could write write some dialogue the guy could write the guy could write (laughs) but yeah this heart of darkness and joseph conrad's writing was an instance where i just couldn't jive with the flow something about it and hopefully we're gonna get into it on this podcast something about it just doesn't connect And the story is about 73 pages in Mm -hmm. the edition we have. I think it was around like 80 pages in high school, Mm -hmm. maybe. I struggled to get through those 80 pages. I just couldn't do it. And I actively tried both in high school and then now for this Mm -hmm. podcast to read. And I read the hard copy uh, for this episode. Normally I listen to the audiobook, but this was so short. Mm -hmm. I remember thinking to myself, oh yeah, I could just zoom through this. (laughs) It took me two weeks. Mm -hmm. 73 pages took me two weeks. I just couldn't read it. So let's get back to my story. In high school, I barely could get through it. I consulted Spark Notes for the entire thing. I think I got a good grade on my essay, but mostly I watched Apocalypse Now because in that class, very much like this podcast, we would cover movie adaptations. That is so cool certain books. So I think I wrote a really strong paper, but I mostly talked about Apocalypse Now. And when I watched it in high school, that was the first time I'd watched it. And I loved the movie when I watched it then, but this was the days before the streaming giants, such as Netflix and mm-hmm. Hulu and Amazon Prime, were really in their prominence. I think Netflix had just started doing streaming in when we were in 12th grade. Oh, I, I, I can't no remember. Idea. I think we only got the DVDs right. for ever yeah (laughs) so but streaming really wasn't a thing so as i've mentioned before i'm very embarrassed about this in my past but i watched an illegal stream of (laughs) apocalypse now i have never done that just kidding or clearly you have very sarcastic okay got it (laughs) cool um how else was i gonna watch the parent trap when it wasn't on netflix oh right true (laughs) the remake with Lindsay lohan (laughs) the best one you mean yeah Um, i illegally streamed that a lot hot take the (laughs) Lindsay lohan parent trap actually pretty good actually really hot take the original parent trap is really good i loved that movie even before i was like og a fan of parent trap we are way off track we are down the I, like, river know the whole song we are in the, in the heart of darkness yeah but <laughs> anyways so i watched an illegal low quality stream of apocalypse now i'm kicking myself now just thinking about watching like a masterpiece the real crime is watching it at shitty quality <laughs> that's, the, the real, that's your yeah real right <laughs> that's like putting ketchup on lobster you know it's just something that you don't you don't just defile something <laughs> so expensive and sacred Mm. and rich both 
thematically right. and at, you know literally and how Visually. much it costs but watched apocalypse now in high school i'd forgotten how great this movie was because that thing happened to me again where everyone always says apocalypse now greatest movie ever made or one of the greatest movies ever made mm-hmm. you know st- war movies next to right, like certainly a war movie yeah, yeah. S- next to like saving private ryan for greatest war movies or you know it's in that same class but re-watching it again for this podcast i was blown away and again this is so obvious to say apocalypse now is an amazing movie (laughs) one of the best movies ever made it it wasn't even in my top 100 and as soon as we finished the movie i went back on you know to my top 100 list i forget what i kicked out but I'm like, uh, obviously, Apocalypse Now needs to yeah. be in here. I might want to watch it a second time to see if it cracks my top 10. I think it's, mm-hmm. I mean, it's clearly one of the best war movies ever made. It might crack my top 10. I had forgotten how truly incredible this movie was. I also forgot how dense the book yeah. was and how much I hated it. Technically, it's a novella. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, um, (laughs) you are wrong. If if you consult the encyclopedia, it must be so hard for you to live with me. It's a little difficult. (laughs) Um, Like we mentioned, divorce papers earlier. I have those on the ready. That's one of the articles of divorce. Just constantly says, actually. Yeah. I mean, I do have a lawyer for for when the day eventually comes. We're not married yet, but I'm kidding. I love you. But it's probably someti- not the best strategy to go into a marriage with divorce lawyers. Well, hey, prenups, that's the whole thing. It's like, you know, you got to cover your bases. I love you, but um, got to come prepared, you know. <laughs> We're joining bank accounts, so, you know, got to cover your bases. But anyways, yeah, that's my long, very long-winded story of my relationship with the source material and movie. Laura, your turn. I don't know. I might even have a longer one, to be honest. Go ahead. Shoot your shot, dog. Well, the reason that I even knew that studying and comparing film and literature was a practice or something that people did was because I enrolled in Dr. Flory, sorry, excuse me, Sean Flory's class. Of course, everyone knows him from the pod because we've had him on as a guest for Emma and Dune. He was obviously very formative in my passion for literary analysis, but he was also very formative in my appreciation and understanding of the mechanics of filmmaking, which is pretty awesome. Awesome. Like, he's a pretty smart guy. And so I enrolled in his class, Film is Lit. I think I was a junior. Film and Lit, right? Oh my god, god damn it. I always get those. Yeah, because uh, this podcast is Film is Lit. Uh, this is like, I do this like every single episode. Anyway, <laughs> Film and Lit was the class that I took with him. And this was like the third thing that we covered in class. And I've actually lost count how many times I've read this novella. Which, by the way, my favorite definition of a novella is it's shorter than a novel, but it's longer than a short story. (laughs) Amen. (laughs) So I have honestly lost count of how many times I've read this. I first read a story of Joseph Conrad's in eighth grade. I actually read The Red Badge of Courage, and I really, really loved it. Oh, wait, he wrote that? Yeah. Oh, I read that when I was young oh cute oh i i love the reg i i had no idea he wrote that same author oh my goodness joseph conrad okay well maybe i just don't like heart of darkness but well i actually (laughs) damn i just said it twice i have (laughs) i think i have an answer for why people find this so dense joseph conrad was writing as a surrealist 
And surrealism in visual art is very difficult to penetrate, but surrealism in writing is next level difficult to penetrate. Yeah. And one of the things that people... So actually, so we have two... I have two physical copies of this novella. I have a copy that is only for underlining, and then I have my copy that is sort of bundled with a bunch of his other essays and some critical analyses on his works that is for like margin notes and all stuff like that. So again, I I think I might have read this book like upwards of five times. I think this might have been my sixth time because I actually also wrote my final semester paper on this. This was the piece that I chose to do my final piece about. But anyway, so he's a difficult writer and this story in particular, I I just have so much to say about it. Sorry, I'll try to like stick to my journeys. In college, I read this novella. I watched the movie three times at least, if not more. I probably want to say I I watched it five times in the span of a few weeks because I was writing this huge paper on it and I had to get screenshots and I had to get notes on lighting and angles. Like again, like this, this movie and, and that class is really where I learned like basically what you majored in in college. I got that sort of as a semester. In the most unpretentious way that I could put this, you could learn everything about filmmaking, I think, from this movie. Uh, Yeah. I mean, yeah. That's a very pompous statement, but I stand by it. (laughs) No, I I think it's true. I I don't think it's pompous. I think it's realistic. I mean, this novella, this movie, have layers on layers on layers on layers on layers. And I'm gonna say this again. I feel like I say this every single episode, but what we find to be a very successful adaptation is the way that the director makes things visual. And even just Coppola's understanding of how dense and surrealistic and strange the writing and the timeline become, especially by the end of the novella, he does that so well visually in this movie. The score contributes to that. The haziness contributes to that. Oh, the the amount lighting of, The amount of fog machines that. that Coppola had to buy for this film. I, I watched yeah. the documentary Hearts of Darkness to prepare for this, which mm-hmm. I recommend to everyone, but... Yeah, gosh, I can't wait to talk about it. Sorry for interrupting. Well, see, but that's the thing. Like, he understood how impenetrable the source material was. And he put that on screen in such a way that everything that I think Joseph Conrad was trying to say about colonial imperialism during the late 1800s, he he got it and he applied it to a very similar situation when he decided to take this to the Vietnam War. Like it's it's just so smart and it shows that he had a complete understanding of what Conrad was saying and criticizing. And there, I just have so much to say. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. but basically that's my journey. My journey is that I watched this movie a lot. I think it's a movie that sort of Danny scratches his head that I really love because it is so violent and laura is an enigma sometimes she'll if someone will stub a toe in a movie and she'll be like i'm offended i that's the grossest thing i've (laughs) ever seen in my life but then she'll see a film like hot fuzz where a pillar literally (laughs) falls on someone's head and they they no it it explodes neck okay whatever but anyways a a head explodes 
a church spire, whatever the heck that is, um, explodes ahead. And she's just like, cinema. <laughs> and then it breaks off and he walks away when he's getting arrested. It's so funny. Yeah, Hot Fuzz, great movie. But, but anyway, so yeah, I, I have seen this movie so many times. The thing that I thought was very interesting about this time, I have never... I had actually never cried during a viewing, and I actually found myself very emotional from beginning to end. I felt very emotionally overwhelmed, and I don't know why it hit me different this time, but I think that just speaks to the long-lasting message of this film. Oh, and I also, my last thing that I wanted to say, I've been very aware that Francis Ford Coppola's family has a winery and he has a huge selection of wines and I've never tried it before because it's like just out of my price range at yeah. $15 a bottle. Oh, but <laughs> trying it tonight, but baby. But I, I really wanted to try it for this podcast yeah. because obviously his movies are iconic. He's iconic, and I wanted to see if his wine is as iconic as his movies. I think it's really good. I got the Chardonnay because I love white wine. Yes. <laughs> I, love, I love a good Chard. So. We're in agreement on the type of wine. I mean, red, red wine is good too, but... Red wine makes me sad. White wine makes me want to party. <laughs> so I just That's tend a good, to like... Yeah, white wine makes you really just the life of the party and so warm and fuzzy. And red wine just absolutely stains my teeth. I look like I'm in 17th century England. And yeah, a little emotional red wine. I shouldn't have... Yeah. So but... yeah, so I definitely avoided red wine while we were watching this. But yeah. yeah, it just... It actually really surprised me how emotional I got during our viewing. So I think I know why. Yeah, that's my journey. You're emotional. Okay. We got a sound bar. Oh, maybe that's why. The sound bar was really clear and it was the <laughs> bassy. Yeah, it was the sound bar. It wasn't the anti-war yeah. message that I was really connecting with. Get yourself a in sound bar. In an America bar. that's falling apart. Yeah. All right. So I have a lot of context I want to dive into. Do you mind if I sort of go on a little bit of Shoot a... Shoot your second shot. Tour. All right. So... I really want to go over some context because this novella is so dense that I want people to sort of understand why it was and still is very criticized by people. And it's, it is fairly controversial and it has been ever since it came out. Although when it came out, it was first published sort of in two parts as a serial in 1899. And then it appeared as the full story in 1902. And actually he's also on the record saying that he didn't think it was his best piece, but I think it actually is his most enduring other than probably Red Badge of Courage. Cause I think, yeah. he, I think a lot of people read that in middle school or high school. Yeah. But basically the background is that he's directly responding to contemporary issues of the late 1890s and more specifically the social issue of European colonialism. Right, because he participated in the ivory trade, right? In the Congo? He did. Yeah. And basically European colonialism in Africa was caused due to this sort of phase which was called the scramble for Africa. And mm. it was between the British, the French, the Germans, the Portuguese, the Dutch. And this is sort of this huge land grab for sub-Saharan Africa. And it's because those countries suddenly found out that they could exploit the shit out of that geographical region. Like you mentioned, there was the ivory trade, there were diamonds, there was lumber, there were animals, like game hunting, just this very rich 
in resources area. I think one of the reasons that that scramble for Africa was so controversial and condemned at the time was because it was so on its face exploitative. So therefore, in response to that criticism, those countries started to realize that they needed to come up with this collective idealism to justify on moral grounds why they were there. And this became the excuse to spread the white man's burden, which is bringing Western civilization to these quote unquote dark primitive areas where again, there was civilization, but these Western countries were coming in and seeing a black people, which they already stereotyped as less educated people. And also they didn't understand like tribal culture. Joseph Conrad is so interesting during this period because Heart of Darkness wasn't just addressing a single issue like a lot of other literature at the time. He chose to attack... There's so much going on. He's yeah. attacking and he's criticizing so much that I think that causes the density. Like you said, in like 80 pages, he criticizes so much. And what he's really getting at, I think, is the hollowness of the claims that these countries were civilizing African people. And that's really symbolized by Kurtz. And I think I'll try to sort of wrap it up here. But basically, Kurtz represents what the governments wanted. They basically wanted him to be like 100% focused on getting ivory out of the Congo, the Belgian Congo. And what's ironic is that he took that message and went so far that he no longer had the veneer of saying, oh, I'm also civilizing these people. So that's why the government sends Marlowe to kill him because they're seeing like, oh shit, he can't cover that up anymore. People right. are starting to hear stories about what this guy is doing and all he's doing is killing native people and sending ivory out. And we, can, we can't let that get out. We can't let these stories get out because even though he's the highest performing person in this chain of ivory exploitation, we can't have people know that that's the reason that he's here. Right. So that's why they send Marlowe slash Willard to kill Kurtz because they need to cover up their own motives. Right, that's the big, if you're talking about how Coppola interpreted the message for the Vietnam War, it's that the US government and the US military had these generals that were these the star generals who would go in with the goal to liberate the Vietnamese people against the, I guess that was North Vietnam, right? The Viet Cong? Ho Chi Minh. Right, so they had this plan to go in like a normal war with their American gusto to liberate a country that they had no part in this war, but they decided to go in. Yeah, and, and it was all based on the domino theory mm -hmm. of communism. If, if surrounding countries were falling to communism, which is what Ho Chi Minh in North Vietnam supported, mm -hmm. then South Vietnam would become a part of this domino effect and quote unquote fall to communism. Right. Because, but it does go back to French colonialism. Right, exactly. Because the, when the French government pulled out 
of Vietnam, then the North and South Vietnamese were fighting over basically how westernized they wanted the country. So America said, hey, if we don't go defend our Western culture in South Vietnam, we're going to lose the South Vietnamese to communism. Right. But then, so in the movie, in the story, Kurtz then realizes that the only true way to win this war is to succumb to the same level as the Viet Cong in terms of brutality. brutality. And then he starts operating with his own guerrilla forces, just like how Kurtz in Heart of Darkness started killing people for his ivory trade. So the U.S. government sends... So like, oh, that's our line. Yeah, you that, found uh, our line, but but we weren't going there. You crossed the line. We weren't pushing you to that line. You right. found it by yourself, and now you're totally rogue. That's like when they like right. start sort of hand-wringing. The big irony being that someone like Lieutenant Kilgore, played exactly. by the great Robert Duvall... Yeah, I have so much to say about right. the character. The, the irony being that he's using the same exact methods as Kurtz is. Killing at whim, no regard for human life. He's disgusting. Yeah. Just Look at his name. You're right, Kilgore, a little on the nose, but... A little sur- symbolic. Yeah, but... but that's what surrealism is. It's all about symbols. Exactly. The, uh, and so the big irony being that Kilgore is as bad, if not worse, than Kurtz. And simply the act of sending an assassin to covertly kill a rogue general... Mm-hmm. Just the act of that is also morally gray. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. But to the government, they just want they just want the problem gone, and they don't want to deal with their own actions of how their own military is acting. Exactly. You know, not, not just the rogue military, their actual military. For some someone like Kurtz, who realistically is not doing that much. I mean, it, it, for Kurtz's own words, he's actually winning the war in a mm-hmm. sense for he's the Americans. He's actually like quote unquote like morally converting which is exactly what they're claiming they're doing but they're not there's no like like again if you go back to Kilgore he's not interacting with any of those people his immediate response to Willard saying I need to land on this beach is he takes a whole bunch of Hueys right is that what they're called Mm -hmm. and he helicopters in and murders innocent civilians like school children yeah yeah oh my gosh i think one of the things that made me really emotional is hearing him scream over the helicopters um he says something very sexually aggressive to a woman who's running away from the machine guns in the helicopters, and they end up killing these two women and that that actually really made me emotional because yeah it's just going back to the moral emptiness of everyone involved and all he cares about is surfing on the beach charlie don't surf yeah I think I do a pretty good, yeah. That's a great Robert Actually, I've I've watched this movie so many times, I I think I have his voice. I love the smell of napalm in the morning. That was pretty good, right? Yeah, but I I think I could actually do a better one. Yeah, whatever. Don't do it. I don't want I don't want to be shown up on this podcast. Smells like victory. No, it's a longer pause. I'm telling you, I have have the timing down. Anyways. Anyway. But yeah, the the bigger point that Coppola is making is showing how war really sends people to the the heart of darkness, in a sense. The late, great Roger Ebert said it best in his review. He said, Apocalypse Now is the best Vietnam film, one of the greatest films of all time, because it pushes beyond the others into the dark places of the soul. Mm -hmm. It is not about war so much as about how war reveals truths we would be happy never to discover. Yes. If we are lucky, we spend our lives in a fool's paradise, never knowing how close we skirt to the abyss. 
What drives Kurtz mad is his discovery of this. That is so well said. That's why he's a great movie critic. Yeah, <laughs> and may, I'm not. May he rest in peace. But no, it is true. I think that it gets to the heart of what's going on. And something that I find incredibly compelling about this movie is the way... Okay, so we were just talking about Kilgore. There's a line in the movie that does not appear in the novella. He goes... Someday this was gonna end. And then he pauses and sort of looks into the distance and then he walks away. And he's so sad. That is the only time we see Kilgore get emotional. And it's because we've seen white masculine toxicity get pulled out of American society that tends to think we can restrain that and plopped right into a world where there are no rules and there is no oversight for someone in his position. Not only for someone in his position, but really truly for nobody. I mean, the chaos in this movie speaks for itself. You know, when Willard's little boat gets to that outpost mm -hmm. where it's just everything is falling apart and he keeps asking people, who's your commanding officer? Who's your CO? Who's your CO? And they're like, I thought you were my CO. Yeah. And I have no fucking clue. Like there's, there's no one in charge here. That is the situation. And I think a lot of times, again, especially as Americans, Americans tend to really like to think that we go into war with a moral cause and we have people we're defending. But that is not true. And that has not been true since World War II and World War One. I. I mean, there are morally gray areas in every single war, and that's the problem. War is a situation where things get so violent and so out of hand because nobody really knows what's going on. It's so, it's so visually confusing. It's so morally confusing. There are things that no human should really be doing or experiencing. It's so traumatic. As Robert Ebert says, you just end up skirting this line and then you just fall into it, especially if you have no moral code like... Kilgore, but also like Willard, because we see him kill a Vietnamese woman in cold blood because she's basically just holding up his trip. So I actually really want to talk about the hollow man, which is sort of in and out of the book and the movie, and also a poem written by T.S. Eliot in 1925. Cool. Um, well, let's talk about that. And then you had some context for the book, but I want to talk about the context of the movie. Yeah. Okay. I'll wrap up my context with this. So do you remember when Willard is being tortured by Kurtz? Yeah. And he's sitting listening to Kurtz in a fever dream, and Kurtz starts to read this poem. Do you remember that? When yeah. When he's inside well, the temple? They talk about this in Hearts of Darkness, the, oh, the okay. documentary, but that poem was pretty much the only scripted dialogue that Marlon Brando uh -huh. said. Everything yeah. else was improv, which is crazy. It's so funny. Uh, Marlon Brando shot for two weeks was was there for three weeks, but they only shot two weeks of footage, and he was paid $3 million, which <laughs> they filmed this in 76. It came mm -hmm. out in 79. But in 76, $3 million, I mean, th it was a news story. Mm -hmm. People were upset and in the industry, <laughs> and they were making a big to-do about this aging, crazed old actor who demanded $3 million. Mm -hmm. And Coppola was like, yeah, there... But did he not earn it? Well, he did with his performance. He though. did, but watch Heart of, Hearts yeah. of Darkness and Brando is such a, I mean... Fun fact, I went to high school and played softball with his Marlon granddaughter. Marlon Brando. <laughs> no, his granddaughter. Oh, cool. She was awesome. Yeah. Shout but, out to her if she's <laughs> But basically, he just showed up, Marlon Brando showed up. He hadn't read Heart of Darkness, which he said he did to Coppola before hmm. he was hired. 
that's a lie. <laughs> just hadn't hadn't read it. And there's footage of just the two weeks of him improving, and most of it is unwatchable, like unusable. Ooh, that's there, uncomfortable. There, there's a line where Brando would just like he would just riff, and he would go, "It's irresistible when a bee discovers honey. He irresistibly driven by code, the bloodlust." And he just keeps on going. And you're like, what are you talking about? And so the seven minutes that they pulled out was just the only usable stuff. And it's a great seven minutes. But Right. Well, I guess I'm actually embarrassed. I haven't watched Hearts of Darkness. It's been on my to-do list, but it's just, I don't know. It's just a little too no, much for yeah, me. Yeah, you don't have but to, but Hollow anyway, Man. Anyway, <laughs> the reason that, that this part was scripted, it was very key. And I think this goes back to how enduring Joseph Conrad's piece is, even though he like didn't think it was that interesting or that great of a story. So this poem was written by T.S. Eliot in 1925. I love T.S. Eliot's work. He's incredible. This poem is incredible. It's very long, so I'm not going to read all of it. But the first couple lines are what Kurtz is reading from that book to Willard in that fever dream. And it goes, should I say it in Marlon Brando's uh, voice? Yeah. Did you like my impression or were you not impressed? I just think I'd do a really good Marlon Brando. Let's hear it. Let's hear it. We are the hollow man. Shit. Why do you have to one up me every single time? All right. Keep going. We are the stuffed men learning together. Had peace filled with straw, alas. Okay, that's all I'm going to say. <laughs> well, let me comment on your impression. It's pretty good, but you don't have his signature uh, lisp with the S's that, oh, that yeah, I did. Right, he doesn't right. say stuffed. He goes stuffed. You're totally right. Man. I definitely missed that. Anyways, we okay. We watched the movie a week ago, so I guess give me a break. But yeah, so he's reading that out of a book of poetry by T.S. Eliot. T.S. Eliot actually alludes to heart of darkness in this poem because the preface says mr kurtz he dead that's the first line of the preface of this poem so it is talking about heart of darkness and this poem goes back to how hollow morals are when you have an evil motive but you try to shellac it with morals that creates a hollow person Mm or hollow man right And that poem takes you on this journey of these soldiers who have died in a war and their souls are searching for what comes next, but they can't find anything because they weren't fighting for anything. And that's why Kurtz in Heart of Darkness and in the movie say, because that's when humans realize that their morals were completely corrupt that's when you start to see like the abyss and the consequences of your evilness. And that's why, that's what Kurtz is seeing and what he's recognizing when he's dying. Right, that's why I think Vietnam war movies in my opinion have, have always been the strongest um, anti-war mm-hmm. m- movies because we have different views on violence and uh, of war movies, but I think we could both agree how senseless and unnecessary and completely arbitrary and barbaric the Vietnam War was. And this, pun intended, this movie gets right to the heart of it. That's why I think critics like Roger Ebert and mass audiences view it as the best war movie. Because it so captures the soul of war in general, but specifically Vietnam and how crazy and affecting it was and the true horror, to quote Conrad, of it and what it turned men into. Right. And I think 
the reason that this is such a strong movie for me is because it doesn't turn its face away from what people did over there. I can't speak from first-hand experience. When I'm seeing American movies that glorify Americans going to war, I know that that's not the truth. Like, I think that we live in a woke enough society to know that Americans are not always the heroes. And so I feel like I'm being given a piece of propaganda when I watch films like that. And then when I watch this, when I see how violent and disrespectful and morally corrupt what was going on over there was, I feel like I'm not being lied to. And America just keeps putting ourselves in situations where we are massively disrespecting and murdering civilians. Like the so many people, especially in this movie, they're shown they're just civilians. Like that that part where Willard murders that woman on the boat and the other guy, the gunman, murders everyone on that trading boat and all she was trying to do was protect a puppy in a little tin can. Like if I showed that to someone, you can't argue that any of those people were doing a good thing. And that's why I, I appreciate this movie. I just don't feel like I'm being lied to. Yeah, well, certainly tough to be an American in the era of Trump. Hopefully Daddy Biden and Mommy Harris can turn things around. Um, here's hoping. <laughs> and that was exactly Coppola's agenda. The famous quote that Coppola made around this movie, he made in the, you know, when this movie premiered at uh, the Cannes Festival in 1979, he said, my film is not a movie. My film is not about Vietnam. It is Vietnam. And just to stop the quote for a second, we proceeding watching the movie, we had a perspective from a Vietnam war vet who said that Apocalypse Now was the most accurate war movie or Vietnam War movie ever made. Like, it was exactly how it was in Vietnam, like Coppola said. He's not making a movie about Vietnam. He is making the experience. He's, and, yeah, immersing the audience into what it would have been like. Right. And his quote continues. He goes, The way we made it was very much like the way the Americans were in Vietnam. We were in the jungle. There were too many of us. We had access to too much money, too much equipment, and little by little... We went insane. <laughs> you know, the physical space that this movie takes up is quite overwhelming. I think right. the one, I mean, in so many instances, like there are so many helicopters in those flyover scenes. There are so many extras in the right. USO show scene. There, The one thing that I wanted to specifically point out was the scene where the little boat that Willard is traveling in goes under a half sunken Huey and the tail of the helicopter is caught in a tree and then the cockpit is submerged into the river and they go the the POV of the camera goes under it like you would be like floating under it and then looking up at it passing over your head. Like, I felt that in my body. I felt like I was looking up at a massive helicopter because like that was there. That was like not a set. That was right. like a helicopter that was sunk into a river that they shot on site. Insane the fact sets that are. anyone could direct this movie is an absolute miracle. This movie truly is the master of the term is mise-en-scene which is i learned that in film and lit class from Dr. yeah Curry. that was the first time i ever heard that term. so a great modern example of mise-en-scene is uh, wes anderson movies he always has a bunch Hell of yeah. just stuff happening in the frame but i think 
I love every single one of his movies. Yeah, Wes Anderson certainly has a style, but I think Apocalypse Now is the ultimate mise-en-scene stuff happening in the frame at all times. Mm-hmm. Or just massive sets. I mean, the coordination for everything. Like, he actually did go insane, as you can watch in the... This whole podcast is just an ad for Hearts of Darkness, the documentary. But... He has a cameo. Oh, right. right? Yeah, and that scene when they first meet uh, Kilgore at the, you know, the Vietnam base. He's the director who's filming the people who's going, don't look in the camera, don't look in the camera, yeah. keep going. He's the guy with the beard. So that's a little cameo by Coppola. But yeah, let's get into some context. So Coppola is com- coming off of The Godfather Part 1 and Part 2, which both won Best Picture. It won Best Picture in 72 and 74 and widely considered the best films ever made mm-hmm. by IMDb and, you know, critics lists and all that stuff. And, and we will cover them on the podcast. Yes. At some point. At someday. Yeah. But something I really liked about Coppola in the documentary is that he admitted that he's like, yeah, the Godfather films made me rich. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, like I, I'm wealthy. And that's something personally I like when wealthy people admit they're wealthy. It mm-hmm. seems like such a difficult thing for affluent people to just admit that he basically had a blank check to make whatever he wanted after those films and he bought uh, an estate in a winery in napa where we got the wine for tonight well we didn't get it there but oh right we, we got yeah wine that came from that but he was living in there and basically he had a, a blank check to make whatever he wanted he saw a script written by john milius called apocalypse now covering heart of darkness one of his favorite books he decided to make it. The studio was giving him $13 million, which was a huge amount of money. Like I said, blank check, but also was a huge amount of money for something material so dense and obviously not mass audience friendly. This movie was a hit, but you can see how the studio execs were nervous that, okay, this like super anti-war, anti-American, dark, violent, like depressing film, like we'll give you $13 million, which is a lot of money, but we're not going to go, we're not going to give you more than that. And so Coppola financed $7 million of his own money to extend the budget to 20 million. Again, Uh massive budget for the time. And he put up his own house and winery as collateral if the movie failed. So he had just, you know, bought this. His whole family was living there. He had three small kids. And he was like, yeah, I want total control. I want carte blanche to do whatever I want. I want final cut which they they gave it to him. They filmed in the Philippines, which visually looked very similar to Vietnam. Only problem was, was the Philippines was undergoing a civil war during that time. So America would not lend any military equipment because obviously they were making an anti-war film. And before this time, I mean, there really was only like The Dirty Dozen, which was like an out and out America is bad film. Yeah, so they had to borrow equipment from the Filipino army but the only catch was that whenever that filipino army needed to fight they would just take that equipment and go off and fight and they wouldn't be able to shoot for that day and with the helicopters for instance that was all pilots in the philippines army and there's footage they would just be shooting that scene you know the scene with wagner of of them storming that village and then all of a sudden the helicopters would just leave and coppola would be like what the heck is going on and they would just be like fighting over the hill they were they were literally filming in a war zone and on top of that there was a typhoon which wiped out 
half of the sets midway through filming. So that added another $2 million just to rebuild everything. And on top of that, halfway through filming, Martin Sheen had a heart attack. I, so I, I think literally, sorry not to interrupt, but Dr. Flory literally had an entire lecture about what went wrong with this movie. Right. And so I heard a couple of these highlights that are just mind-blowing. Mar yeah, Martin Sheen had a heart attack, so they needed a film around that for four weeks. I think he was out for almost a full month. So a lot of the scenes filming on the river with the boat, when you're seeing Willard's back, a lot of time that's Martin Sheen's brother. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. That's interesting. So, was this heart attack, was that at the end of the scene in the beginning where he punches the mirror? I, I thought that was. Oh, this, here's another fun fact. So Martin Sheen was also recovering from alcoholism and, and drug addiction. That's why he had the heart attack. Yeah. But in that scene when he punches the mirror, this is kind of a well-known fact, but that was not scripted, that he right. actually punched it and actually cut his thumb. But then... So uh, separate incident. A separate incident. Okay. But Martin Sheen, he was actually drunk for real while filming that, but he demanded that Coppola keep filming. And Coppola was so into it that, you know, he continued doing. So yeah, real blood in that scene. Yeah. So yeah, Sheen had a heart attack. Typhoon, the equipment they would use would all of a sudden just leave for days at a time. So the Filipino army could fight the war. Then on top of all this, then they had the Brando problem, which Coppola initially wrote a big battle scene at the end, but he he didn't know really how to finish it, and then he went for this more kind of esoteric ending, but of course, everything needed to be improv because Brando did not know his lines, was not familiar with the source material, and Coppola was just kind of just making it up as he could go along. Brando had came to the set supremely overweight, which the plan for the character was for him to be on the, on the skinnier side because well, he was- he's sick. Yeah sick and out in the middle of the jungle not really he has malaria I right. think. yeah but he came fully overweight so they decided to shoot him in a way where he was only in shadows and in the dark and they shot him like this big brute like to be like six six five or something like that when in reality brando is only five eight mm -hmm. but they filmed him at low angles to make him seem like this giant like this something force that of really na nature strikes you is how big his hands look and how big his head looks right i think they did that perspective really well he just looks and in the novella he's described as voracious the first time that marlo which is willard's character in the book sees him he says that his mouth is open like he's going to devour everything that he sees so he's supposed yeah. to be that kind of massive larger than life man right he ends up being the right choice because brando is so iconic mm -hmm. on his own he is like kurtz himself just this enigma just this mysterious figure that you can you can see you can see him influencing a bunch of people with his mysticism just like he influenced the american photographer played by dennis hopper uh, who was actually high on set like a you lot of tell. a lot it, of his lines it, were <laughs> rambling and improvised too yeah the photographer character is a great parallel to the the russian character right. in heart of darkness of how this kind of quote-unquote civilized person mm -hmm. who just as easily as the native people became enraptured in in the spell of kurtz so to end my context of the making of apocalypse now all throughout the filming, 
Coppola thought it was going to be a huge flop, a huge disaster. It ended up costing around $25 million, all said and done. Ended up grossing $150 million. So, big hit. So he now has a winery and I drink his wine. Right. And he had already won Best Picture twice and Best Director twice, but this film was nominated for eight Academy Awards, did not win Best Picture or Best Director. It won Best Cinematography, which beautiful cinematography. I mean, it looks modern. Yeah. And it won Best Sound. Great. But it lost Best Picture to Kramer versus Kramer. I mean, who... I've never seen that. that, that, It's basically like Marriage Story, but in 79. I mean, no one's talking about Kramer versus Kramer. I've never seen that. Right. No one even knows. And it lost Best Screenplay, Best Director to Kramer versus Kramer. But our boy, Robert Duvall, was nominated for Best Supporting. Yeah. He totally deserved it. Even with only 10 minutes of screen time, I mean, he makes a lasting impression. Absolutely. You know, when they're landing on the beach and then those two guys run by with surfboards and then he starts like taking off his uniform and it's so magical masculine. He keeps grabbing his crotch and ripping off his shirt and he just clearly thinks of himself as a superhero and Willard makes a comment like he just had that look like he knew he wasn't going to get a scratch on him. Yeah. And it's like that kind of gross toxic masculinity coming back to America is very disturbing and that's why he says that line. Someday this world's going to end and he knows that when he comes back, he's not going to be able to act in that way without social restrictions because people he respects will be watching him. But yeah, every single line of his is just iconic. Um, very different than Boo Radley. Yes. In <laughs> <laughs> To Kill a Mockingbird. Just the opposite character. Incredible performance. Yeah. Oh, I forgot to say it was filmed in 238 days, the entire oh gosh, film, which is an insane amount. Dreams. They shot a record 1.5 million feet of reels. Holy crap. Which came out to 240 hours of film. Oh my God. So it took a team of four editors over two years to cut this film. Yeah. I can't, that's just unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, you know, we didn't even talk about the opening with the doors. Yeah, let's do that. That iconic. The end. That song was written about Jim Morrison's ex-girlfriend and a breakup. On its face, that song isn't really that complex, but... After Jim had written that song and the Doors were performing it live, it started becoming this 12-minute fever dream in itself. And he started adding the story at the end, which is disturbing, but it's sort of an Oedipus storyline. And in the very end where we hear the like, that, that part, so that wasn't originally in the song, but when he started riffing when they were on stage, that became sort of this battle cry, and like it's been described as sort of this really intense barking, which is accurate, I would yeah. say, if you listen to the song. And what makes it so appropriate is it feels like that song is just unraveling, yeah. you know? And I just think that if you can say that this movie has a structure, the unraveling of the psyche is the structure. And basically confronting yourself and realizing that you have no moral values. And not only that, but you're in a situation where that leads you to murder people in cold blood is so horrifying that all you can do is explode with this like, rage and sadness. So I think like choosing that 
song to open the movie is quite a stroke of brilliance. Yeah, it's literally <laughs> saying this is the end at the beginning of the movie. Yeah, well, and you know what's really interesting? The end of the poem, The Hollow Men, is this is the way the world ends, not with a bang, but a whimper. Oh, I've heard that line before. That's quoted a lot. Okay, and, but yeah, it's T.S. Eliot. Oh, and it's so accurate. Shout I mean, out to my man T.S. <laughs> what does that stand for? Theodore... Oh, 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 I know this. I know this. Don't, don't. Tom Starnes. Thomas Starnes Elliot. And you know why I know that? Not only because I studied literature in college, but because Midnight in Paris used to be my favorite movie. And there's this one point where Owen Wilson is getting into this cab when he's slipping back into time and he goes, hi, like, nice to meet you. Oh, hi. You know, I'm, I'm Gil. And he, and he goes, Tom Elliot, T.S. Elliot, Tom Starnes Elliot. <laughs> Oh, like, okay. That's, that's like why I always remember it from your the movie. Owen Wilson impression. Oh, it's not great. Yeah, I'll admit. Wow. But, <laughs> but he's Tom, one of my he's one of my favorite actors. The positive ions going. Wow. Yeah. Gosh, I love that movie. You're my best friend. You're my pal. And he's also in like all of the Wes Anderson movies that I love. Right. It's a total. Overlap. It all comes down to Wes Anderson. But anyway, uh, yeah. So that's the end of the Hollow Men, and so this is it the was end. so brilliant to open the movie in that way because basically yeah like this is the way the world ends people fighting each other because they want to show how massive their dicks are that's that's kind of how i view war i think it's a very masculine disgusting thing i'm a pacifist i'll go on record saying that oh really (laughs) Um, yeah (laughs) (laughs) wait you don't like war no no you do like war I'm confused. Obviously, I don't support it in any way, shape, or capacity. Gotcha. Thanks for clearing that up. You're welcome. It's easy with a film as incredible as Apocalypse Now to stray away from the source material. Maybe we'll talk about Heart of Darkness a little more in our Ad Astra episode next week, but... Oh, I thought I talked about it a lot. Oh, well, hey, we'll see when we put this podcast together, but I feel like it's mostly been the... Maybe talk more about the fever dream structure. Because it sure has a fever dream structure. That's for sure. And I love that Apocalypse Now, just like the book, it's kind of split into three acts where Mm -hmm. the beginning, our our main character is arriving. You know, he's on the outset of whether it be the Belgian Congo or Vietnam. He's just starting. And although he's still a little bit disturbed by what's going on. He has no idea what's coming. And then the second act, you arrive at the deserted outpost where in, in the film, it's like at night, that crazy scene where these explosions are going on and the bridge is collapsing. And you're like, how did they film this? It's funny, the commentary that Coppola is talking about in the making of this film, he says, you couldn't make this in America. Like we just went into the jungle and literally burned forests down just like it's like they didn't care but and then in the third act it just delves into complete madness where you're in the belly of the beast and it's just complete craziness and i like that the film doesn't have a traditional last action battle scene that most war films whether pro or anti-war itself most war films have that last final battle but this is very much the antithesis of this where the structure is so loose and he gets all the way to the end of the river and meets kurtz but then kurtz kind of just allows himself to be killed it's not even like a mission it unravels like a fever dream it starts out as this very direct mission but turns into something much more metaphorical yeah i think it's interesting that in the book 
Marlo doesn't kill Kurtz. Right. He just dies because he's sick. And I think Coppola probably changed that on purpose in the movie. Yeah. I think that he killed Kurtz because it was sort of his final realization that there was nothing there. Like he was completely lost. Yeah. But he also breaks down because I think he realizes he's on that path as well. Well, yeah, that's that line in the movie when Willard kills the woman in the boat. Right after that, he said, I've never felt closer to Kurtz. Mm -hmm. He's starting to realize that he holds the same ideology. But then when he finally arrives, he understands that, oh, there's no method at all. And he's just delving into complete madness. So although Willard himself has gone mad too and is clearly morally corrupt or in a gray area, like he's still our hero and we still root for him. Actually, I kind of stopped rooting for him at that point. It's an interesting, yeah, it's an interesting moral dilemma that you, the viewer, have to make because... Yes, he did murder the woman, but he was saying to the men, don't go over there and check out the boat. Because he, Willard was experienced enough to know that this is going to end badly. And Willard had the mission, so he was more or less warning them to say, like, hey, if you go over there, we'll, we'll have to kill. And he was so, by that point, so deeply in it that... Yes, him killing the woman was reprehensible, but it also kind of was something that he was trying to avoid happening. Yeah, but I don't think that he's supposed to be a sympathetic character no, no. at all. And like, as much as I do root for him, and he's a very tragic character, and we know that he's already been on a tour of Vietnam, came back to America, and couldn't handle it due to his PTSD, and went back. Like, he kind of did ask for like more violence. Right. And like, even that as a setup, is a problematic way to introduce us to a character. Well, it's interesting that a lot of war films show you a character who is sane at the beginning and by the mm-hmm. end they've gone crazy. Mm-hmm. But this movie starts with someone who is already has PTSD. That's why he accepts the mission more or less because he wants to meet Kurtz. Mm-hmm. He sees himself in Kurtz and he views Kurtz as an answer. to whatever he's looking for. But then once he finally arrives, he realizes that there is no answer and kind of killing him is this cathartic release of him gaining some sanity by letting loose, if that makes sense. Yeah, but I also, I was going to comment on how it's interesting that the movie doesn't really feel like it has an ending because even though there is that climactic scene where he hacks Kurtz apart, while the native Vietnamese, or actually they're Cambodians because they cross into Cambodia at that point, are ceremonially slaying a cow or a water buffalo. I'm not quite sure what it is. But he never leaves and he doesn't have a crew at that point except for the Californian that starts to lose his mind a little bit while they're in Kurtz's yeah, complex. Yeah, Lance. Lance. Is his name. Yeah. So it is cathartic, but as a viewer you know that Kurtz was a completely hollow person. Like, there was nothing there. And so even though Willard kills him, I don't personally think that that means anything for him. Like, even in the moment, he thought that might have been, like, cathartic. Sure. But I think, like, as he's leaving, he lost so much on the way there. Yeah. But I think like if you sort of followed him back to Saigon, I think he loses his mind. Like taking this movie a little bit further, I think he like completely loses his mind. And you know, actually that 
goes back to something really interesting. There's some criticism I wanted to touch on about the book. Maybe I'll touch on it in part two. It's getting, we're getting a little long yeah. for this episode. But basically, I just, I wanted to touch on some, some Native African criticism of the original source material. The reason I think the source material and the movie are still fairly controversial is even though it's very realistic in the violence and the disrespect, it's so gratuitous that it can be very disturbing for the people who were traumatized by that from a Vietnamese or a, an African perspective, because yeah. like those are native people to them. And like, even though it's making a statement about how terrible war is, seeing those things or reading those things when that violence happened to your generational ancestors, like that's a completely different perspective. And these two pieces aren't necessarily respectful toward that. Sure. Yeah. But I'll, I'll save it for the next episode because yeah, it's it a part, lot. Part two. Like yeah. you said, that there's a reason we're doing part one and part two for this source material. And It's because I need an extra week to read our next book. <laughs> Just, no, well, just kidding. <laughs> well, that's well, part I mean, of it, but of. <laughs> yeah, for East of Eden, that's a yeah. long one. Yeah. yeah, we can wrap. We can wrap. Wrap up, um, but I mean, yeah, I don't. I hate to keep saying this point, but it's just Apocalypse Now, one of the greatest films ever made. I mean, it's beautiful. The scope and scale. I mean, it truly is an epic. But the thing I admire about it so much, even though it's epic, it ends very intimately both metaphorically, but literal, dark, enclosed sense, where it's just focused on a couple of characters, and it starts out very grand. So you kind of get everything. You get great battle scenes, great sequences of action, but also storytelling, acting all around. Mm -hmm. The music, which was Carmine Coppola composed the score, which was Coppola's dad. Yeah, incredible job. Yeah. The tension that the score builds is masterful right there's sort of that high wine that a lot of war movies use mm -hmm. yeah it's really really well done and the thing i really appreciated this film that i don't see a lot of war films doing is just the constant noise of war yeah. a lot of times you can't really hear the dialogue or characters can't hear what people are saying yeah. and it's kind of like yeah that's what it really was like. I, I mean, I'm not a veteran, but you can kind of assume with helicopters flying all over the place and bombs, it's just hard to hear people talk. Well, the difference between a great movie and an okay movie is, for example, the club scene in the social network right. versus, you know, like a, a rom-com, like Crazy Stupid Love, where... There are a lot of bar scenes, but you can always hear the dialogue. Yeah. But in the social network, they're screaming at each other, but you can't hear. Yeah. And you can see that they're screaming because of their body language and people are like leaning in over the table so that they can hear what the other person is saying. But they're sort of communicating with their hands because like it's so loud. And that's exactly what this movie does as well. It yeah. doesn't pause everything to make sure you can hear the dialogue because what's important is experiencing the scope yeah. of what's going on physically. And um, I think yeah. the Academy agreed it won Best Sound, like I mentioned earlier, but it's crazy how this movie only won two Oscars. I mean, that absolutely... Not winning Best Picture, I mean, that's, like, stupid. Yeah. That's stupid. Even, even though Coppola had already won it twice in the same decade... If you earn it, you earn it. You're right. <laughs> right. Okay, I have one more comment. I'm so sorry. That's fine. I didn't even talk about how the end of the novella is super, super different from the end of the movie. In the end of the novella, Marlo comes back from Africa and has a little box of personal effects 
that he takes back to Kurtz's wife. And that's sort of when he gets hit with how hollow everything is. Yeah. Like, he already knows. Oh, gosh, there's so many scenes that we haven't touched on in the novella. But basically, he goes back to London and takes this little box back to his wife. And his wife is devastated by Kurtz's death. She's under the impression that he was a great man. And he ends up lying to her and telling her that instead of his last words being the horror, the horror, it was her name. And he decides to prop up the idea that he was this great man, which, you know, I find problematic, but he's sort of a morally hollow character anyway. A perfect example of a, an unreliable narrator. Yeah. And that's when it sort of clinches it, when he lies and decides to continue that image of Kurtz being a great man. I think that's a big reason why I just can't connect with the book because I really don't enjoy Marlo as a uh, main character and he narrates the whole thing. Yeah. And I just, I, I know that whole lens of him being unreliable and he himself is written to be slightly pompous and, and just the whole time mm-hmm. I, I understand the messaging and the themes of Heart of Darkness and I understand what Conrad was saying but I just can't connect with, with Marlo in any way like in any way there is nothing that i really find it's not like i'm just completely offended and repelled by him it's just there's just really nothing to Mm -hmm. engage with for me this that's personal so that kind of speaks to why i hate the source material so much or why it's so difficult for me to read because there's just nothing for me to latch on we honestly could do a part two on just apocalypse now so much do you want to do that we could I don't know. We have to wrap. Let's wrap and then we, talk about it. Yeah, there. yeah. Maybe, maybe we'll do part two, which is Apocalypse Now, part two, and then part three will be Ad Astra. Let's talk about I don't, it. Maybe there's enough material to do, to talk about. I don't remember Ad Astra, so I'm just going on your recommendation that there's going to be enough to talk about because I don't remember it well enough. Oh, there. I just don't. There's going to be. I remember enough. a monkey. Uh-huh. Is there a monkey? Yep. <laughs> and I remember thinking Brad Pitt looked super thin. And that's about it. Well, hey, <laughs> we're going to rewatch it. But yeah, we'll see you next week. Maybe it's Ad Astra. Maybe it's Apocalypse Now Part 2. We don't know, but we got to wrap up. We it would depends go- on how long it takes me to read yeah. East of Aiden. Yeah. <laughs> and my toe. <laughs> I'm listening to East of Aiden. But- anyway, yeah. Thank you so much for listening. As always, we really appreciate it. And you can follow us on Facebook or on Instagram. And if you want to suggest a book to us, we're always open to suggestions. Always. Yeah, if you want to be a guest, yeah, let us know. And what is your Letterboxd handle? Yes, yeah, so you can follow me on Letterboxd. My name is at Danny G Reviews. Letterboxd is an app where you can review movies. It's just Facebook, but for movie critics. And anyone can join. So I love it. So follow me there. Yeah. He's got some great reviews. Oh, shucks. I knew you do. The horror. The horror. All right, peace out. Wrap it.